0: the Lord. Amen. 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 Please have a seat. And I have the privilege of welcoming up my fellow pastor. Pastor program to teach us. Thank you, sir. Thank you, brother. Can we give uh, Pastor Micah and his awesome <laughs> leading a hand? Blessed by you. Thank you. We're going to turn our attention to God's word in Titus chapter 3, and I am greatly humbled. All jesting aside from the last session, I'm really humbled to be able to adorn the gospel of our gracious God and Savior, Jesus Christ, for just a few minutes with you men. So look with me at Titus chapter 3, starting in verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy. so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is the word of the living God. Let's bow our heads together. Our gracious God and Savior, we turn our attention again to your timeless word. Your word that you promised us would not return void. The word as we sing, it's above all earthly powers, of which Christ is the grand subject. Our good, its design and the glory of God its end. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would speak now, for we, your servants, are listening, and we're putting our trust in the word of the living God. And we ask this in Christ's name and for Christ's sake. And all who agree said, amen. Men, there is no hope to become a sound man apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. You may have a different story than the man you're sitting next to who has a different story than the man sitting across from him, who has a different story than the man who is speaking to you this morning. But you don't have a different gospel. Charles Spurgeon on one occasion said, "Whitfield and Wesley might preach the gospel better than I do, but they cannot preach a better gospel. There is no better gospel, for there is no other gospel. You and I don't need to improve upon the message of the gospel, which is the life, the death, the burial, in the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the Son of God. He is the King of creation. He was sent by the Father to redeem what was lost in Adam's fall and to take away our sin and bear the wrath of God on our behalf. There is no greater news than knowing your sin, my sin, has been forgiven and Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. The gospel of Christ changes everything. Amen? The gospel has transformed particularly our past, it has anchored our present, and it has solidified our future. Those are three things I want us to look at in this brief time in the text that I've been assigned, Titus 3, 3 through 7. Remember, we are studying a pastoral epistle. It's one in which Paul is offering both encouragement as well as advice to Titus. He's an elder who has been left on or in Crete, however you want to say it, to appoint more elders and to put what remained into order. Now, as we've come to see, the Cretans were quite the ministry group. So Titus had his work cut out for him. If we look in chapter 1 again, verse 12, we notice that a prophecy is true, a testimony is true, that Cretans are, note, always liars. They are evil beasts and they are lazy gluttons. Sounds like a fun way to kick off a men's ministry with a group like that. And yet, how do you minister to Cretan men who have that sort of description? Lying, gluttonous, evil beasts. How? By not watering down the truth of the gospel, not by modifying the message of the gospel. You see, when presented to either the lawless, the one who is apart from Christ, or the legalist, the one who seeks to add rules to the scripture to win merit from Christ, there is no need to either dumb down the gospel or dress up the gospel. The same gospel that saves sinners from their unrighteousness also saves the proud from their self-righteousness. And so in verses 3 through 7, there are three truths that all of us this morning, no matter where we're at and what our story is, we all can say these are three truths that we share because of the gospel of grace. And we're going to walk through each one of these briefly in the two hours that I have left. No, I actually only have about uh, 15 minutes. So we're going to look at our identity before Christ in verse 3. So our identity before Christ. All of us here have an identity before Christ. We're going to look at our security in Christ, verses 4 through 6. What a glorious thing that is to have security in Christ. And then thirdly, we're going to look ahead at our eternity with Christ. In verse 7. So let's begin by looking at our identity before Christ. Notice verse 3. He says, we ourselves were once. In other words, if you look at the verses right prior to this, in verses 1 and 2, Paul tells him, Titus, remind the church to be submissive to authority, to be obedient, to avoid quarreling with others, and to be gentle and courteous toward all people. Why? Because, verse 3, because we ourselves were once in that same, uh, same place of sinful separation from God. Paul says, don't forget, when you drive past the prostitute, when you observe the drunk who's sprawled out on the street corner, when you, in business, notice that one particular businessman who is bound up in greed, or if you know a son who's embroiled in a hostile quarrel with his father, he says, don't forget, this is what we once were. He says, come down off the high horse and off that judgment seat and recognize that, but for the grace of God, there go I. Now, again, it doesn't matter what your particular story is. Paul says that our identity before Christ, notice, was marked by six things. Six things that he mentions in verse 3. He first begins with the word foolish. By the way, this is the same Greek word that's used in Romans chapter 1. In fact, there's a lot of parallels between this verse and Romans chapter 1. In fact, we look in Romans 1 and it says that their foolish hearts were darkened. Whose foolish hearts? Those who had exchanged the truth of God in unrighteousness. They had suppressed the truth in their ungodliness. They were unregenerate. He says this is what we used to be. Our foolish hearts previously were dark. Not only that, but secondly, he says that we were disobedient. We were rebellious against God's law. Not only that, but thirdly, we were deceived. The word he uses is led astray, but the idea there is wayward. We did not know the truth. We were deceived. We were led astray. Some of you have that particular testimony. You were led astray by some sort of false teaching, by some sort of cult, uh, by uh, some philosophy of this world. And then it gets worse. He says, not only that, but we were slaves to various passions and pleasures. We were bound by lustful, sensual pursuits, which we thought, I'm chasing after to give me freedom, and yet, these are actually keeping us in bondage. We were a slave to our flesh. And then he says, you were, number five, passing our days in malice and envy. Those are fun neighborhoods to live in, malice and envy. In other words, you were just passing your day, living an aimless life that was futile and forgotten, if not for the trouble that it caused others. Your day, the days that you lived were pointless. They were going nowhere, purposeless. And then finally, he says, we were marked by being hated by others and hating one another. You could say our relationships before Christ were marked by selfishness and contempt, not love and service. What a great resume. You and I have given to the Lord. This is what God had to work with when it came to you and to me. Now, some of you may have a more extreme testimony. Maybe your, your testimony is you were saved out of drugs and alcohol abuse. Some of us have a more domesticated testimony. My name is Pilgrim. My parents were Christian hippies, and so that's why I was named that I don't know what any parent would do that to their children for, but they, my parents named me after Pilgrim's Progress. It was a lot of fun in middle school to have that as a name. But I had a more domesticated, if you would, testimony. And yet, even so, I and all of us can read this description and agree, who I was before Christ was a wretch in need of saving. A parallel passage to this is Ephesians chapter 2 and you can go read this later, but verses 1 through 3 says that we were dead in trespasses and sins. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh. We carried out whatever the desires of our body and mind told us to do. In our very nature, we were children of wrath. But see, in Ephesians 2, we come to verse 4 and a very significant word. It's the same word that we see here in Titus chapter 3, verse 4. It's the same word we come to In 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, which we've referenced twice now in this conference. There in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul has just explained remember, the sexually immoral, the idolater, the adulterer, the homosexual, the thief, the greedy, the drunkard, the reviler, the swindler will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he says, and such were some of you. But then the next word. What is the next word? Well, it's right here in Verse 4, it's the word, but. In 1 Corinthians, he says, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. In Ephesians 2, we were children of wrath. Our identity before Christ. But then he says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Our identity before Christ, it's darkness, it's bleak, it's death, but God. And so we come to the second section, our security in Christ, in verse 4. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. For the theologians in training, you can note with me, verses 4, 5, and 6, that we see a great picture of the Godhead here. We see the Father, God our Savior, verse 4. We see the Son, In verse 6, Jesus Christ, who is also listed as our Savior, a great picture of the deity of Christ. And then we see the Holy Spirit referenced in verse 5. And so in our salvation, men, the Father's decree, the Son's death, and the Spirit's deposit are all at work, bringing you and I from death to new life. If you take a minute and circle or underline the word, or the two words, loving kindness in verse 4, literally the Greek is philanthropy. The idea is there is a love for man. God saved us according to his love and, if you note in verse 5, his own mercy out of his goodness. And if this love had not appeared, you and I this morning would certainly not be here. But you and I would still be in the sinful state that we just read about in verse 3. God... His goodness, his loving kindness, the God of our Savior, who is our Savior, appeared to us. If this love had not appeared, we would still be in that sinful state. The gospel, then, is not about our worth. It's not about our good works that merit salvation. It's not about wages. It's about God's work and God's ways. Notice verse 5 tells us what the Holy Spirit does in our salvation. The Holy Spirit is the one who regenerates and renews. And so Paul is telling us that the Holy Spirit is active in making us new, but also keeping us new. So we who were dead with that rap sheet have now been made alive. We who were dirty by our sinfulness have now been made clean. We've been regenerated and renewed. And we who were old are now new. The Spirit of God was poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, who is our only Savior. But notice with me that the saving work of the triune God is not done by us or done by our works of righteousness, but it's according to his mercy. Men, I just need to say this this morning. Your works did nothing to save you. When God looks at your resume, he doesn't say, you know what? You've got potential and I really want you on my team. I need you to come work for me. You're going to make a great asset in the kingdom. No. No. In our sinful state, apart from Christ, we are wretched. We are poor. The scripture says we're naked, blind, ashamed, worthless, and condemned. That's what we brought to the table. And yet, in Christ, we are being made new. We are made new. We are being conformed into his image. We've been born again into his likeness. And thus, when the Father looks at you and me, He doesn't see our sinful identity. He sees the perfect righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. Just consider this. Nothing that we have done in these verses was accomplished in our own strength. All of this was accomplished by his mercy. Like which one of these was done by us? Was it his goodness and loving kindness appearing? Was that you? No. How about him washing and renewing us? Nope, still not us. How about him pouring out his spirit upon us richly? Yeah, I can't say that's something I did. In fact, you go back to chapter 2, verse 11, it says the grace of God has appeared. Uh, He's the one who has done this. Uh, Verse 14 of chapter 2, he gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people. That is something he has done. Man, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. None of our salvation was accomplished by us, lest we get the credit and thus we get the glory. Men, what binds us all together here this morning is not merely barbecue or basketball, as glorious as those things are. What unites us is that those of us who have trusted Christ are recipients of his divine mercy and his sovereign grace. Thus, if we did nothing to merit our salvation, we can do nothing to forfeit it. Our salvation in Christ is secure. And that leads us to our third point, our eternity with Christ. Notice verse 7. He says, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Being justified. To be justified means to be treated as if you've never sinned and more than that, as if you have done everything that God required of you. It means to be in right, forensic, legal standing with God. Now, this morning, you may not feel justified. In fact, there are many Saturdays I wake up not feeling justified, but it's not about our feelings. This isn't the Women's Conference. It's not about our feelings. You see, God declares you are in right standing because of the perfect righteousness of my son. You and I are not justified by keeping the law. No, but by his grace, verse 7. And that is through faith. And notice what you and I have to look forward to one day. We have our past that has been redeemed. We have a a present security in our faith. But look at what we have to look forward to. He says that we are heirs. An heir is someone who is documented legally to be a recipient of the treasures of their father. And on earth there's plenty that could jeopardize this. Some of you may have an inheritance from your father you're looking forward to. All it takes is one bad lawyer or the wrong stepmom, and the inheritance is in jeopardy. In the first century, if your wealth was locked up in wool or silk clothing, you had to keep the moths away. They could literally eat your inheritance. If your wealth was in metals, you had to protect them from rust. You also had to constantly be vigilant against thieves who could easily locate where it was hidden and steal away all that you were waiting to inherit. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, there is a treasure in heaven that moth and rust could not destroy, where thieves cannot break in and steal. And in 1 Peter 1, through 3-4, the Apostle Peter said this. He said, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Two, here it is, an inheritance that is, it's imperishable, it's undefiled, it's unfading, and it's kept in heaven for you. Understand your future, Christ follower. You are an heir of eternal life, something that will not perish. It won't be defiled. It will never have inflation and lose its value. It is not something you need to guard and keep. It's kept in heaven for us. You know, as I think about these verses and how they apply to my life, And I think about these verses and how they apply to your life. I suspect in a conference this size, there are some of you who may never have repented of your sin and trusted Christ. You've never received the gospel by faith. Or maybe you're seeking to work your way to merit God's favor. You may know the right words. You may have attended church regularly. But as Alan mentioned earlier, you may not be regenerated by the Holy Spirit. The scripture declares to you today, you are a sinner. The wrath of God abides upon you. And yet, because of the finished work of Christ, you're invited to come. We're all invited this morning to come. In fact, one of my favorite hymns is called Come Ye Sinners. And it was written by a man by the name of Joseph Hart. And Joseph Hart's life seems to embody the verses that we've just read. Hart was raised in the home of pious believers, and they actually taught him the word of God from infancy. In his 20s, Hart found himself bound by his sinful, lustful desires. And even though he grew up in the church, he completely misunderstood grace. And so he gave in licentiously to his flesh and gross sensuality. Here's what he said about himself. He said, I imagine I obtained by Christ a liberty to sin, and I was resolved to make use of that liberty. In this abominable state, I continued as a loose backslider, an audacious apostate, and a bold-faced rebel for nine or ten years, not only committing acts of lewdness myself, but infecting others with the poison of my delusions. So even though he was raised in the church, he went this route. Years later, as is the case with many men, he swung the other direction and then began to become a staunch legalist, trying to work for his salvation by praying and even reading scripture in the original languages. He did that daily, and yet there was no lively sense of divine love over and under and through it all. And that fact sunk him lower so that for two years he suffered from great despondency. But finally, on Pentecost Sunday, 1757, Hart's true salvation came. He was converted under the ministry of George Whitfield. And here's what he said. After the preaching of the exposition of God's word, he says, I was hardly home when I felt myself melting away into a strange softness of affection, which made me fling myself on my knees before God. My horrors were immediately dispelled, and such light and comfort flowed into my heart as no words can paint. And I cried, what, me, Lord? But I have been so unspeakably vile and wicked. And his answer was, I pardon thee fully and freely. Thy own goodness cannot save thee, nor shall thy wickedness damn thee. I undertake to work all thy works in thee and for thee and to bring thee safe through all. It was at that moment that Hart says he was truly converted. And after that, he laid his entire life down at the foot of the cross and said, Lord, would you use me in the church? Can I be of service to Christ's church? Within a few years, he became a pastor. And he preached the gospel of God's grace to, at at one time, a congregation of over a thousand souls. And on his dying day, his final breath was this confession, I know myself to be a child of God and an heir of glory. He died at the age of 56 and entered into that inheritance in the arms of his dear Lord, buried at Bunhill Fields. His remains were just a few feet away from where John Bunyan, Daniel Defoe, and John Owen were laid to rest. The man who ran from God was invited to come as a sinner. And at his funeral, over 20,000 mourners came to give their respects. And as we close this morning, I just want to read the original lyrics of this hymn, Come Ye Sinners, because it's a picture of his life, it's a picture of my life, and Lord willing, it's a picture of all of our lives. And my prayer is that some of you this day will come As a sinner, come to the cross, repent, turn from your sin, turn to Christ. Embrace the gospel, which alone has the power to save. Will you bow your heads with me as I read this hymn to you? Come ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus, ready, stands to save you, full of pity, joined with power. He is able, he is able, he is able. He is willing. Doubt no more. Ho, ye needy, come and welcome. God's free bounty glorify. True belief and true repentance, every grace that brings us nigh. Without money, without money, without money, come to Jesus Christ and buy. Come, ye weary, heavy laden, bruised and mangled by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Not the righteous, not the righteous, not the righteous sinners, Jesus came to call. View him groveling in the garden. Lo, your maker prostrate lies. On the bloody tree, behold him. Hear him cry before he dies. It is finished. It is finished. It is finished. Sinner, will not this suffice? Lo, the incarnate God ascended, pleads the merit of his blood. Venture on him, venture wholly. Let no other trust intrude. None but Jesus. None but Jesus. None but Jesus can do helpless sinners good. Father, we thank you this morning that we can embrace the gospel of your incredible grace. This morning we acknowledge Our past has been redeemed. Our present has been secured. We are justified by your grace and our inheritance is waiting. Lord, we look forward to that day when we see you face to face and we hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. And we know that that is only because of the finished work of your dear son on our behalf. May we embrace the gospel and be preachers and purveyors of that amazing gospel we pray this day. In Christ's name, amen.